0: And let's open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3 verse 14, and I'll pray before we we get into this passage. Our Father, we pray that you would fulfill today what we just sang, that all that we have needed, your hand has provided All that we have truly needed, you have made provision for. Uh, You have accomplished our redemption through Christ. And you have renewed us, those of us who know you savingly. You have given us new life through your Spirit to turn from our sin toward you, to live a new life of godliness and good works. And I pray now that as we open this passage Especially that your word would be clear, that it would be as a light shining in a dark place in each of our lives, that all the problems we have that we just can't seem to figure out, all the sin we can't quite seem to conquer, that your word would work in us today, that your spirit would be at work through the word today to give us understanding and to give us power to live a life that pleases you. We pray that the goals that we may have that do not please you, that you would mortify those desires in our hearts. You would mortify the lusts of the flesh and the love of the world in us, that you would renew our hearts to have the right goals, to have the right perspective on life. We pray for clarity. We pray that you'd guard us from distractions for these next moments as we hear your word, and we pray for help to, to preach your word and to do it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may have noticed, 2 Timothy is not 1 Thessalonians. And I am committed to the exposition of Scripture, right, where we just go through one book and take that verse by verse and really see that in the context. And that's the most powerful way to study Scripture, and I advise all of you to do that in your own study, to walk through a book, really see how the whole thing fits together. But I think there are unique moments in the life of the church where it calls for maybe a special sermon or a topical sermon. Although even topicals, you'll find today, will be in one passage for most of the message. And I think today is such a day. I mean, the installation service was last Sunday. And and on, just to be honest with you, I'm thinking, okay, what do I want to mark my ministry as a pastor, as a new pastor? What principles do I want to anchor myself to that no matter what may come at our church or me personally or you, what is going to hold us, what's going to anchor us, right? So controversies come and go. There's all sorts of different errors. There's all sorts of different interpersonal problems that we'll have to deal with. But there's certain fixed principles that will keep us on the right path. And what I want most of all is to be a pastor in the Reformed tradition, the Reformed faith. What I mean by that is primarily that we are anchored to God's Word. That God's Word is the sole infallible rule of faith for our life. That we're going to draw all of our beliefs from the Scripture, and that whatever is not contained in the Scripture, we are not going to be forced to believe. We're going to reject beliefs that people claim are true and authoritative and necessary for salvation if those truths don't come from the Scripture. And there's plenty of Christians today that think, well, the Scripture is God's Word. Uh, I know I'm supposed to read the Scripture. I know the church is supposed to do biblical things and offer biblical classes and studies. And a lot of people think, well, the Bible doesn't have errors in it, I will grant that, that the scripture is an accurate record of history and also of God's revealed truth in it. And other people would even go so far as to say it's authoritative. We believe that scripture has authority, that if I feel a certain way or I want to do a certain thing in life and the scripture forbids that or the scripture commands me to do something I don't desire to do, I have to change my desires. I have to humble myself under the authority of Scripture. But there's really a final attribute that I would argue many, many, even evangelicals deny, which is the topic before us today, which is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. And what I mean by that, what I mean by sufficiency, is that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are a clear and perfect guide, one to save you from your sin Everything you need for salvation is found in the Scripture. But two, perhaps even more profoundly, everything you need to prepare you for good works is also found in the Scripture. So let me say that again. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament are a clear and perfect guide to save you from your sin and to prepare you for good works. Now, I would argue many people deny that. That they would say, well, you just want to... Take the Bible and reject everything everyone's ever said, all the, the teachings of the church. You just want to be you and your Bible making up whatever, reading whatever you want from your Bible. And that leads to insanity and confusion and etc. But I, I hope to convince you of this doctrine today that the scripture actually claims that it's sufficient for all of your needs, all your real needs. And that that's clear. There are some things that are difficult to understand in Scripture. We don't deny that. Uh, if anyone's ever read all the genealogies and tried to piece all those together, well, there's some difficult things. You need to study. You need to learn. There's some words you need to look up or, or consult people. What is this righteousness, justification, etc.? But the argument is that everything you truly need for salvation and for Christian life is found in the Scripture. And that everything else is, in a sense, a help. It's a help, but ultimately you're not counting on that. The clarity of Scripture is coming off the pages, and you're not dependent on anyone, even me, or any other teacher, to unlock the mysteries of salvation, so to speak. So let's, let me read this passage for you and look at the context. Paul's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Paul is uh, in prison awaiting his death. He's Unlike his other earlier prison epistles, he's certain he will die soon. And he knows his young protege, Timothy, a younger pastor, is um, not necessarily up to the has the same fortitude as the Apostle Paul. He needs a lot of encouragement. And so Paul writes him this letter knowing that Timothy is in this difficult situation. And as we just survey chapter 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, if your ministry is difficult, don't be surprised. The Spirit says it will be difficult in the last days. Why? Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, etc., etc. This is the context that Timothy has to, has to minister in. And he's not referring to way out there in the distant pagan centers of culture, in the, the heights of government, but in the church, there'll be, there'll be men and people in the church that fit this description. That there'll be, there'll be false brethren. There'll be people that oppose uh, leaders in the church. There'll be people that follow ungodliness. Verse 10, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, And what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so here's our text, verse 14. Here's the context. But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy, hearing that Paul is about to suffer martyrdom for the faith, is no doubt a bit depressed by this, feeling anxiety. His mentor, the person he's followed around for probably decades or at least 10 years, maybe more, the man he's been relying on and learning from and depending on, all his questions, he's taken them to this man. Uh, When he's been afraid, he's followed this man's courage and, and leadership. And rested on, on him in a sense. And so what, what is he going to do now that he's gone? He's been bereaved. He's about to be bereaved of his spiritual mentor, his teacher, the person that supported him. W- what is he going to do now? And it's so difficult. It's so difficult. Little experience having to lead a church like this with people in the church like this. Uh, so difficult to know how to answer each person. Everyone's different. Some people are rebellious. Some people are real believers and need to just grow more. Some people are out to kill you, right? Some people in Paul's life were like that. And so there's such a difficult situation Timothy is in. And I would argue that if you have any difficulties or problems, that we can look at this passage as an argument from the greater to the lesser. So if Paul told Timothy, everything you need for your difficult ministry, very difficult ministry, is found in Scripture, I'd argue what is sufficient for the shepherd is sufficient, more than sufficient, for the sheep. And so I want to argue from this passage that Scripture claims that it's sufficient to meet every need in your life. So let's look first of all, at the sufficiency of Scripture for salvation in verses 14 and 15. He says, But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the sacred writings referring to the Old Testament at this point, which are able, right, which are able, they have an ability in them, the Old Testament Scriptures, to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The first command is to remain in God's word. And it's one thing to be introduced to the Christian faith. It's a one thing to, to enter into that and be joyful. Oh, Look at all these blessings that God promises to the Christian. And God gives a, maybe a, a temporary supernatural joy at the very beginning of our walk with Christ. But then as life goes on, right, as our, as our mentors we separate from them or they go to prison, <laughs> in Timothy's case, or so we, just, we just move. It's not so easy. Life's not always so easy, right? When, when people are younger and they're in a, in a healthy fellowship, there's so many people to, to rest on, like Timothy did with Paul. But then as, as these people, these bulwarks of the faith, start to disappear or, or move on or, or pass away, and life becomes harder and harder, there's a greater temptation to drift, right? And that's what we all do. We all drift. I mean, it takes work to remain in the Christian faith, wouldn't you agree? That we don't just wake up, okay, I was a Christian yesterday. By default today, I know by the end of the day, I'll still be a Christian. We're commanded many times over to remain or abide, right? John 15, abide in me. So there's a command to remain in what we've learned and become convinced of. That's why we're called sheep, right? I'm not a, as you know, I'm not a, a shepherd, and I don't work with animals, but I do know from many people and from Scripture that sheep wander, and that's how we are, right? We're prone to wander. We'll just wander away. If we don't put effort into remaining in the faith, we will wander away. And Paul is telling this to a pastor, right? Right? You think, oh, the pastor doesn't need to hear this. He's reading the Bible all day. I mean, he's praying hours a day, reading the Bible all day, uh, meeting with other godly men constantly. But, but no, we're all people. We're all sheep who are prone to go astray. We need to remain in God's word because it leads us to salvation. And here's where I want to prove to you that the scripture is a perfect and clear guide to lead you to salvation. So notice what I'm, again, what I'm not saying is every single word and page in the Bible is equally clear that a two-year-old could understand it who doesn't even know how to read. No, that's the straw man, okay. What I'm trying to argue here is that if you are honestly seeking God and you pick up the Bible and you read it, you can discover the path of salvation. You can discover the path of salvation. And that's really the ultimate need that we have. Uh, people are bored with the Bible or they neglect the Bible because it doesn't meet their, need, their felt needs. Well, why, do you talk, why are you talking to me about salvation? Right? My problem is that I need to clean up my life uh, so I can be more successful or comfortable. My problem is that uh, I need to solve some interpersonal issues. Uh, my problem is that I don't feel good. I don't wake up, I don't have the pleasant emotions. But the Bible really thunders about the primary topic of salvation. And that would be the greatest tragedy, would be to figure out everything in your life, to figure it all out, to be successful, to be educated, right? To have a perfect family, perfect family, middle-class America. Retire early, go golfing, rearrange potted plants on your, on your front lawn, until kingdom come, right? You can have all of that and lose your soul. And if, you read, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus talks about this constantly. He's always calling people back to the heavenly perspective. I mean, what, how did he live? He didn't live trying to accumulate all these things. He didn't even have a home. He didn't even have a home. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul. And so we have to give attention to what the Bible calls us to give attention to the message of salvation that's clearly spelled out in Scripture. And so what is that? If it's so clear, I mean, we ought to be able to articulate it, right? What is the path and plan of salvation that anyone can discover by reading the Scripture? It's spelled out right here again. The Scriptures, the sacred writings are able to make you wise unto salvation, what kind of salvation? How does that work? Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Through faith. And if we compare this with other passages, it's obvious that this is faith alone, that salvation comes and is obtained through faith by itself, faith in Christ Jesus. And faith in scripture, it's not just adherence generally to a a belief system. Well, I'm a woman of faith. Well, I'm a man of faith. Or yes, I have faith. I still have my faith. I've heard people say it like that. Uh, Faith is really a belief. You accept certain things as true. But then beyond that, you place your entire future on those truths. You trust in those truths. And through faith, this is really the most humbling doctrine when you think about it. If someone says, well, what? Okay, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of salvation, and, but what do I do now? How can I be right with God? Well, the answer is nothing. The answer is you can't do anything to be right with God, that your sin has made a separation between you and God, and that you have to throw yourself completely on the mercy of God for salvation. I mean, could a criminal an embezzler or someone that was convicted of conducting a Ponzi scheme or murderer, or something like that, make up for that with a few charitable good works? Well, I won't do that again and I'll give to the poor and be nice. Well, can that make up for your crime? No, no. It's only through faith. Salvation is through faith by resting and trusting upon the work of Jesus Christ. And it's not being part of a religious system, and as as necessary as I think church is, it's not even through the church. I'm not dispensing salvation to anyone. I'm just teaching you what God has said in the Scripture. And what I say is always open to objection, if I'm found to be teaching anything contrary to that. And so I think it's clear from this passage that Scripture is clear. It's a clear and sufficient guide to lead us to salvation. And it's a salvation that is through faith, by looking to someone outside of ourselves, looking to what Christ has done for us. And there's no one else that could have saved us from our sin besides Christ. And why is that? Well, Jesus Christ is unique and set apart from every other person in history, even religious leaders, even Christian religious leaders, And that he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's truly God, but he's also truly man. And really what our sin deserves is an eternal punishment and penalty, the eternal penalty of hell. And so if you think about it, how could a human pay the price for your sin? How could a human be a substitute for you or a sinful one at that? Has there ever been anyone who's lived sinless besides Christ? Well, no. No, but he had to be God. He has to be God in order to pay the penalty for the sins of all the elect, all the people God has chosen for salvation. And so that's the only way to salvation. I think it's important to say that, as obvious as that may be, that it's clear from this passage that there's only one road and path of salvation. That's through faith in Christ Jesus. All roads don't lead to God. Just become someone is, is nice and polite and religious, whether it's an Eastern religion or, or a, a, a deviant form of biblical Christianity, that, that doesn't lead to salvation. There's only one road to salvation through faith. And if we get that wrong, then really going to the Bible for, to solve any of the other problems, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I've heard it say, Someone uh, once came up to a a speaker who was talking about the sufficiency of Scripture and said, well, don't you think there's some benefit to this and that and and the rest and these other systems and philosophies that help people? It seems to work in some cases. It seems to be helpful. And the guy said, well, a little crassly, it's basically a waste of time if you're going to hell. I mean, honestly. I mean, I don't want to be simplistic, but it's true, isn't it? (laughs) What a waste. What a waste of time if I'm going to spend eternity in hell. If I'm going to miss out on the glorious city of God with Christ and with God. And so we have to get salvation right. Scripture is a sufficient guide to lead anyone to salvation. But then second of all, and this is I think is even more disputed than the first point, that scripture is sufficient to prepare you for good works. Let me read 16 and 17 again. So he just said the sacred writings, the Old Testament, are able to make Timothy wise for salvation. But now he broadens the scope to the the emerging New Testament writings, which were still being written at this time, and said all Scripture, the Old Testament canon and all the Scripture that Christ commissioned his apostles to write, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I would argue that this passage claims that, that Scripture is completely sufficient and provides everything that you need, not only to heal, right? Not only to heal your defects, not only to help you overcome sin, but way more than that. It's to equip you to do any good work that God wants you to do and calls you to do. So let's consider in this argument, Paul, Paul leads this out very logically for us here in three steps. First, he begins with Scripture's origin. He says, Scripture is God-breathed. Your translation might say it's inspired by God or given by inspiration of God or, or some variant of that. But it really means God-breathed. God-breathed is a, a very literal translation of the two words that are stuck together. Theos is God, and then pneo, or to blow, or wind, like the wind blowing is the other word, and those are put together, and it's an adjective that describes the origin of something. And this word was universally interpreted this way up until the, the, 18th, the 19th century with German higher criticism. People started to try to twist the, word, the meaning of the word. But if you look back at at other uses of it in Greek literature, it's very obvious that it's a passive meaning. It describes how something came into existence. It's God-breathed. It's not that the scriptures, when I read the scriptures, I get inspired and excited like like that. Some people argue for that. But the context really guides us here. It's speaking of the origin of scripture. And the scripture is sufficient for us, not because it's interesting to read, or it's, uh, there's marvelous stories in it, or sublime wisdom from ancient people, but it's really that it, cam- it comes directly from the mouth of God. That's what it's claiming. And the word inspiration, just, just so you know where that comes from, because the word to inspire, it's, it's, uh, it does have that meaning in our culture uh, of being um, influenced, Right? Where I feel inspired, that was an inspi- I saw this movie, this war movie, now I'm inspired. I'm more patriotic because I watched that movie. Or someone may encourage us, oh, they inspired me to do something that I was afraid to do or, or worried about. But the word inspiration originally comes from a Latin word that means the same thing, We're referring to the breath, something that's breathed out. And so that's what we mean by inspiration, and really what I'm talking about here is the doctrine of inspiration. Right? Have you heard that before? The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture? What that doctrine is claiming, when you say, oh, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, you're saying, I believe that God spoke these words through human instruments. That's different than saying, well, I believe this book tells me about God, or there, there's true things about God here, or this book accurately records the experiences of religious men. We're saying more than that. We're saying every word, even these personal letters, right? Even the letter to Philemon, even the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis, all the, all the wisdom proverbs. Everything comes from the mouth of God. That's what, that's what it says. All scripture is God-breathed, right? And what's the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that is that scripture is useful. It's useful. If I wrote you something and gave you advice, not from Scripture, just from my own limited human experience and study of the world and human relationships, that would be of limited value, wouldn't it? You say, "Well, who are you? You're, you know, thirty-something. You're you're from this part of the world. Um, you have a very limited cultural experience. Your advice might not transcend cultural boundaries to India or China or Russia." And that's true. I mean, the counsel I'm able to give you is limited. I mean, I'm not talking from the scripture, just from my own experience. It's limited by me. I limit what I can provide and help you with. But because God has spoken to us, we can be sure that his word is sufficient for us. For one, he's infinite. He's, He's the creator. He created us. He designed us. He knit our soul and our body together in a complex unity. He knows every sin that you might struggle with. He knows every problem you'll encounter. He's intimately equated with suffering. Je- I mean, Jesus Christ took human nature upon himself and personally experienced what life in a fallen world is like. God knows everything. It's And more than just being intelligent, he's decreed everything. He knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that, he knows every single moment of your life from here till you die, what will happen to you, what's coming to you. And he's always known that. He's always known that. And so the question would be well, God is not limited by his ability. He's an infinite being and he's perfect. But has God really spoken to us things that are sufficient? And here we have to remember that he's good that he's not only able to speak words that are sufficient for every problem, but he's willing to. God is a good God. If you ever think of God or, or tempted to think of God as just some cruel puppet master, like when I, we talk about God's sovereignty and control, if you ever think, oh, that's you're saying God is a cruel puppet master, let me tell you, you have the wrong idea about God. The first verse we we read just at the beginning of the service, right? The Lord is good to all, and his compassions are over all his works. There's never been one moment where God hasn't been good. And so when God speaks to us, he's not only perfectly able to speak truth to us and counsel us, but he's willing to. He's willing to, and he's gladly provided his counsel in the scriptures for us. And so we have to say scripture is useful. And that's very important to, to just emphasize the use of scripture. I mean, scripture is not a puzzle to be solved. Scripture is not fodder to have theological back and forth just for fun. Uh, scripture is not a spell book. Like we can, we can recite a verse over and over and think that's going to somehow do something? Scripture is meant to be used. It's meant to be understood and used. That's what Paul's arguing for here. It's profitable. It's useful. It's intended to be used. And so let me tell you, if you know theology, but you're not doing theology, you're not using the Bible as God intended it to be used. Right? I I would personally rather you know less of the Bible and do that which you know, than to master. Think you're mastering the whole thing, and yet none of it's shaping your life, none of it's really changing you. It's just knowledge. It's just heaping up knowledge, buying more books. And this is, uh, as we'll see, I'll mention a little later, the church has often fallen into that air where it's just, this is just mater- It's just raw material to play with. It's like our play toy. No, it's meant to be used. And what are its uses? Paul gives us four uses of Scripture here. First, it's useful for teaching. And these, there is an order to this sequence, as you'll see. There's teaching, reproof, correction, and finally training in righteousness. And you see the progression there? So there's teaching, that's teaching truth. And then there's reproof, that's identifying what's faulty, either in your beliefs or your practices, Correction, that's, okay, you're wrong, but now let's help you get on the right path. And then training, that's establishing good and godly habits, new patterns of living, and strengthening those godly patterns of living. And it, it's significant that the first step is teaching. Teaching. We could also say the first step is theology. So don't think I'm saying, because of what I just said, don't think I'm bagging on, ragging on theology It all begins with theology. If we don't know theology, um, we don't know what to do. I mean, you won't be able to be a godly husband or wife or neighbor or worker or, or employee if you don't know theology. Theology is the most practical thing you could ever learn because it's the foundation that all these imperatives are built upon. That's why we can't divorce all these pithy commands in Scripture from the doctrine underlying them. For example, you could mine Proverbs for, for all this wisdom about handling money and speech. Those are very popular topics with people. Uh, there's even like Christian programs that, that use the Proverbs as their foundation, and then you can buy this and you'll be wildly successful financially, I'm sure, if you go through that. But we can't divorce that from the theology. Uh, I mean, I can know how t- to handle money wisely— But if I'm not ultimately using that money the way God intended it to be used for his glory, I've missed the whole thing. I've missed the whole thing. I'm now just adulterating scripture. I'm rejecting the doctrinal teaching of scripture and just trying to take bits and pieces of wisdom. So we have to begin with teaching. And that's important to remember because the church, it's really all about this. It's all about theology and teaching. And I even want one of my first priorities is to start a, a theology type class uh, in the middle of the week, or, or maybe some other time. We'll talk about the best time and place for that, and when exactly it would start. But I would really want all of us to be on the same page with just the basic doctrines of the faith, and to be familiar with them, know how to defend them, where they're found in Scripture, because all the all the problems we have, all the the personal problems and sins we're so eager to to work on, that. That's the foundation we're going we're gonna to work with. But second, we go to reproof. The scripture is sufficient for reproof. That refers to convicting someone of sin. And so this is courtroom language. It's strong language. Uh, the word describes a prosecuting attorney, demonstrating before the court and before the judge and jury the guilt of the person beyond reasonable doubt. And some Christians, I hate to tell you, think that this shouldn't apply to them. They think, well, I am a Christian. I'm a real Christian. I don't need rebuke. I don't need rebuke. Just let me, I mean, I'll handle my own problems, thank you. I don't need anyone to, to confront me or, or if I'm sinning in some way. I don't need reproof. I don't need rebuke. Well, what does Paul say to Timothy here? Well, the scriptures intended to be used this way for yourself, but also other people. Timothy's in this context, this difficult ministry. And Paul says, Everything that you need to do among this, this difficult situation with these people, the scripture is sufficient for you, and it will provide the wisdom you need to teach and also to rebuke when you need to. And then look at chapter four, verse two. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. So it is with patience, but nonetheless, that's a command to every preacher, and I would say to every Christian, right? That we need to reprove and rebuke each other uh, gently, gently. If someone is uh, a sincere believer and maybe they're not aware, you want to begin gently, but as the heels are dug in more and more, the rebuke needs to be ratcheted up a little bit more and more for the sake of that person to, to really alert them to the danger of their sin. And if you think you're, well, I, I'm a little beyond this. I don't, I don't need to be sharply rebuked. Let me just remind you that Moses, David, and the Apostle Peter were all sharply rebuked by God. <laughs> Moses was rebuked for striking the rock. Remember, if you haven't read that story— he rashly struck a a rock contrary to God's command and and he dishonored God and God rebuked him and said, because you did that, you're not going into the promised land. Moses was rebuked by God. David, a godly man, a man after God's own heart, the best king in Israel. Remember, what did Nathan the prophet say? You are the man. Rebuked. The best king in Israel, rebuked sharply by God. That was a prophet speaking for God, right? For murder and adultery. And then Peter. Peter was re- rebuked by Christ. He was called Satan. J- he said, no, Jesus, don't go to the cross. You don't, you don't need to go to the cross. Uh, that's, that's not part of the plan. I thought we were all going to get our crowns today. Why, do, why are you talking about dying and suffering? What did Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan, to Peter, to the Apostle Peter. So let me just encourage you, if in the life, in the Christian life, in the context of the local church, that someone comes to you at some point and rebukes you, that you're in good company. (laughs) You're in good company. We all need that. May we be as humble as David was and say with him, let the righteous smite me, in loving kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon my head. And I would say that's a major test of whether someone's a, a real Christian, whether they're born again, is how they respond to criticism or to rebuke, right? How do they respond? That's a big test. But, fin- but thirdly, correction. Scripture is useful for correction, not just to condemn. You know, you are you are in this sin. You're guilty of this sin. But then correction. God provides counsel to bring us out of our errors, whether in beliefs or in practices, to restore us to health. The scripture not only diagnoses our sicknesses, but heals our spiritual sicknesses as well. And this is the put-off, put-on principle of changing as a Christian. So if you think, well, I'm trying to, to stop certain behaviors, but I'm, I'm finding it difficult just to stop, right? So I've, I have all these people telling me, oh, just stop that. Just stop it. Well, Scripture would say you, you can't really stop an ungodly habit or practice until you replace it with the corresponding righteous practice. We need to put off and then put on the corresponding godly behavior. But finally, training in righteousness. Scripture is useful for training, and training refers to the type of structured education that produces a responsible adult. And this establishes new patterns of living, so you can transform your habits, your way of life, your manner of speaking, training in righteousness. Uh, Personality even is not fixed in Scripture. Some things that are that we usually attribute to introverts or extroverts or certain kinds of, you know, personality uh, pegs. Some of those are just sinful, and we change. And so our personalities change as we're trained in righteousness. And scripture is sufficient for all of these things. But finally, consider the effect of scripture. So I don't want to belabor this point any further. The uses of scripture uh, where it's come from, it's come from God. I'm guessing that you may have walked in today already convinced of that. Well, I, of course. I mean, I'm coming to church. I'm a Christian. Of course, the Bible comes from God, and I know the Scripture is useful. I just, I know that almost instinctively. I know that the Scripture is useful for life, and I, and I want to do, I want to put that into practice. But here's really the, the capstone of the argument that Scripture is completely sufficient for all our needs, What does he say here? He says, So that the man of God, using scripture in this way, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it was sufficient to train Timothy for ministry. I mean, to be honest, he didn't need Paul anymore. Paul was a dear friend of his. But in terms of living a life that's pleasing to God and finishing the race well, Timothy didn't need Paul. That's what Paul is saying. You don't need me. You have the Scripture. You have God. You have God's very breath in the Scripture. And God is infinite in wisdom, and He is infinitely good, and He's provided everything that you need on the pages of Scripture. And so, let me encourage you, if you're afraid to serve God in some way, the the Word of God will give you courage to do that. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So fear, how would we counsel fear? Well, by meditating on the truths of Scripture that promise God's presence. God is with us. Nothing can take us out of his hand, out of Christ's hand, because God is always with us to protect his people. If we lack wisdom in our homes, Scripture says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. Just ask God. once again, in good company if you don't have the wisdom to make decisions in life. You're in good company. We just ask God. If we only ask God, He will give us the wisdom we need. And so the passage clearly teaches the sufficiency of Scripture for living the Christian life. The Christian life is not merely about healing our wounds, uh, being restored to some measure of, of health, but it's actually about equipping us For war, equipping us for spiritual warfare, to serve God, to impact the world for Christ. But now let me, I think it will help us all to clarify this in our minds by just looking briefly at a couple objections. So I mentioned this has been disputed. I do think it will be helpful to consider three objections that have been commonly raised against the sufficiency of Scripture. The first is cults. So other Christian cults or other religious systems that have their own scriptures. Uh, One example, uh, there are many, but I'll just pick one. It's probably the easiest. The Book of Mormon, uh, Mormonism. They have additional scriptures. So they would argue with me, no, the scripture is not sufficient. We have another prophet, Joseph Smith. He came and he gave us the Book of Mormon. Then we also have the pearl of great price the doctrine and covenants and they even believe in modern day prophets and apostles that that's still ongoing and so what do they say? okay so what do they say about the bible they would say well the bible is great the bible's a great book but notice if you go on um you know learn more about mormon.com or or something some sort of uh, resource to learn more about it where are they directing you to they're going to direct you to the bible no you will not be directed to the Bible. You'll be directed to the Book of Mormon. But, but what about the Bible? You're Christian. They say they're Christian. Oh, we're Christian? Yeah. You'll be surprised how similar we are. What about the Bible? Well, they would say the Bible has a lot of errors in it. And, you know, all these errors crept into the Bible. And, you know, if you just read it, there's all these contradictions and people that we don't know if they even lived. And, but, I mean, the Book of Mormon, that's the real stuff. That's the real touchstone of truth, and so we can really focus our efforts there. What, what would be the response to that? What would be our response to, to people like that? And the same would go for Islam, make very similar arguments. Uh, they claim the scripture is corrupted and, and all of that. Turn to Revelation 22, uh, just the very end of the Bible, and I would rest my case on one verse here. Revelation 22. And I think this would be worth noting down. Revelation 22, verse 18, just this one verse here. That verse says, so this is the the end of the Bible, according to my argument, the 66 books of the Bible, where here's the end of the Bible. Why do we say this is the end of the Bible, the last book in the canonical scriptures? I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, like Joseph Smith, or the prophet Muhammad, or etc., God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. What are the plagues? Fire and brimstone? Rivers of blood? You can read about it it's pretty clear to me that prophecy has ceased and that John is not just closing out the book of Revelation, but he's closing the canon of Scripture. And this is why I would argue very strongly that there is no prophecy today any longer, that we have everything we need, that Jesus Christ has come and he commissioned the apostles to reveal to us the full plan of salvation. But I think that's a relatively easy objection to deal with. For those of us who believe the Bible, who are convinced that the Bible is true, that God has really given us a conviction in the scriptures, it's easy for us to look at occults and say, well, if you just take an honest look at those books and compare them with the Bible, there's just no comparison. And Joseph Smith, that guy had a lot of problems. If you just read about his life, uh, no comparison whatsoever to a true biblical prophet in the scripture, in terms of his ethics, even. But let's consider another one. From Rome. So, so the Roman Catholic Church would say Scripture is unclear, therefore it's insufficient. So they would say the Scripture, right, it has everything we need, it spells out salvation, but it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand. And this teaching, it didn't just pop up one day, right? It evolved over the centuries. It began in the early church where people said they noticed there were disagreements. And the church wanted to appeal to some authority to settle controversies. And so what would they say? They'd say, well, they'd use arguments like, well, this doctrine is believed everywhere. The deity of Christ, I mean, everyone believes that. That's a Catholic doctrine. That just means universal. It's a universal doctrine. So if there's some weird group over here that's teaching a new doctrine, we'd say, the church doesn't believe that. The church universal doesn't believe that. And so we know you're wrong. But that evolved over time. And that's a pretty hard standard to meet, isn't it? Unless this is believed everywhere, it's not true. Well, that's a hard criteria to meet. (laughs) That every church has to believe all the exact same things or, or it's false. And so over time, this came to be, well, it's not all the churches. It's just all the pastors of all the churches when they get together. If a group of pastors get together and they decide a doctrine is true, then it's true. But then, oh, wait. What if some of them disagree? Or what if we vote on it and it's 60-40 or 50-50 or 90-10? What's the criteria there? Okay, so a little step further. Oh, okay, okay. Now it's just the, the Pope of Rome. He's the most prominent bishop in the, in the church, and so we defer to him. You know, we defer to him, the rock of the church, the vicar of Christ. He speaks for Christ. Oh, but some of our popes haven't been so great. Uh, some of them have taught heresy. Um, okay, it's only when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, officially. And so we can have Francis speaking all this weird stuff, but oh, it's just when he's ex cathedra, and that when he said over here in this interview, that wasn't ex cathedra, you see how, how that developed. You want this standard of truth that's based on consensus, but that's that's hard, that's not a standard of truth. And so in the end, you have to just do what the Catholic Church said did in, 18, in the 1800s and said, okay, the Pope is officially infallible. So that's a Catholic doctrine. The Pope is infallible. And so that's how we get around this. And they would say to you, well, you can't understand the Bible. It's not clear. There's, there's a book that came out recently called The Obscurity of Scripture. And that's not a new argument. That's gone back to the Reformation times and before. Catholics have called Scripture a wax nose. Kind of an interesting... Uh, name for it, what they mean by that is, like a wax nose, you can turn it any way you want. You can make it mean any way you want, anything you want, like a nose made out of wax. And so they'd say, a modern Catholic would say, well, you're all debating this same-sex controversy thing and transgenderism. Well, this guy over here supports that based on these passages. This Christian over here supports that position, and we have all these conservative guys over here, they disagree. Hey, that's proof. These guys disagree, therefore, Scripture's unclear, therefore, we have to rest on the Pope. There you go. Without him, or without the control of the church, the official teaching church, we can't be sure, because we're all going to agree, disagree. And honestly, if we all got together and went through every single doctrine that's ever been debated in the history of the church, I would guess we would have some disagreements. There'd be some disagreements in this room, hopefully on more minor things but still there would be disagreements. What's the response to this? Well, I have three points here, just briefly. And first and most generally, Scripture is addressed to the common people. Scripture is not addressed to, oh, the doctors of the church or the PhDs or the priests even. I mean, in Deuteronomy, you can flip back to Deuteronomy 6, when Moses gave the law, he said, "You shall teach these words diligently to your sons, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up." So that'd be a little strange to command every parent to teach their to teach their children a book that was impossible to understand. And and all the, the books in the Bible are addressed to, to people. But then, second, Scripture is called a light. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 105. Scripture is called a light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Yeah, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I have confirmed to keep your righteous judgments. So notice that Scripture is itself the light. And I don't want to be pedantic here, but it's, it's important to understand so we have confidence as we read the Scriptures. That the Scripture itself functions as a light to the individual believer reading it. And if this were true, if we really did depend upon uh, an official teaching group in the church to understand the Scripture, it would say, well, this group or the church, that's the lamp to your feet. That's the light to your path, because ultimately it would be unclear. You couldn't understand scripture. You couldn't understand how to be saved without that clarity coming from the, the official church. And then finally, scripture explicitly claims that it is clear about the way of salvation, both in Deuteronomy 30 and Romans chapter 10. Let me just turn to Romans chapter 10 for a second. Romans chapter 10 verse 5 it says for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of law the man who does these things shall live by them i'm reading verse 6 here but the righteousness of of faith speaks in this way do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven that is to bring christ down or who will go down into the abyss that is to bring christ up from the dead but what does it say So here it is, the word is near you. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes leading to righteousness and with the mouth he confesses leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. And then whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that explicitly claims that the way of salvation is clear to anyone who would listen. And even if you struggle with theological terms like justification by faith or inspiration of scripture, if you struggle to remember terms like that, let me just boil it down. If you call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, for salvation, you will be saved. If you depend completely on Jesus Christ for your salvation and believe that you contributed nothing to it, but that Christ alone provides it, you will be saved. And in time, you will come to understand more of those doctrines. More of those doctrines. And there's there's more we could say on that as well. Uh, let me just finally address the issue of uh, one one. Area or objection that you may be even more familiar with than the first two, and that's become especially relevant in the last 50 or or 70 years, and that's from uh, the secular discipline of psychology, right? Which is really a parallel uh, methodology and system that people have come up with to attempt to meet the needs of people, to meet the needs of people, and so Christian counselors and psychologists would say, well, Scripture is God's book. It is helpful, but it's limited. So it addresses the area of the spirit. It addresses the matters of faith, what you need to be saved, what you need to believe about God. But man is, is more complex that you're giving him credit for. There is not only the body and the spirit, but there's also the soul. There's this, Im- there's this part of man, the mind. That's why we have terms like mental illness, uh, mental disorders, and things like that. And I'm not an expert in psychology, but that's just the point. That's just the point. The question is, do you need to be an expert in any other discipline to be able to live a godly life, to live the kind of life that pleases God, to be able to meet any need that comes across your path? And the answer would be no. And so some people, some people in the realm of psychology would say, well, all truth is God's truth, and God has made us creative and intelligent, And he's designed us and commanded us to learn more about the creation, and that includes ourselves. And so we have medicine, we have doctors, and all that's good. So if we discover something helpful about man's psyche, about the immaterial side of man or human behavior, well, that's helpful, and we can bring that into into the arena of helping people with problems. But the problem here is that man, although he can be very intelligent, and discover lots of things about the world, he is fundamentally opposed to God. And so when we have this discipline that's arisen out of people that were atheistic, I mean, Sigmund Freud, I know not people in, in the universities, they're not studying Sigmund Freud necessarily, and taking everything he taught, and then putting it into practice. I understand there's a very diverse spectrum of psychologies. I mean, he hated God. He, he mocked God. And he's the guy that really started this movement and made it popular. The problem is that man can discover things and observe things. Oh, these human behaviors, these characteristics. But when it comes to interpret those things, the sin in him leads us astray. It leads him to form incorrect conclusions about human behavior. And so it's true. There's a lot of observations that may be helpful in psychology. There's a lot of very intelligent people, probably far more intelligent than myself working in that field. But fundamentally, we, we have to ask the question as Christians, is that something I need? So I'm not talking about the edge cases where we have, you know, the, on, on the streets of San Francisco, people running around, insane, hurting people. Okay, that's the exception that proves the rule. My question is, what, what are you going to do when you are caught in a certain sin? Or when you have an issue you can't overcome or you need advice for godly living? Is that something that's necessary for you? Well, well the passage here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, everything in scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for you. And it's enough to equip you for every good work. And the final verse, I know we're going to quite a few verses Today, but this is the the final one, and with this, I'll I'll close. Psalm 19, verse 7. And I would really rest my case here on if someone is debating whether or not I really need the insights of a secular discipline, granted mingled with Christianity a little bit, but still a, a secular discipline. Do I need that? Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul perfect. So the law of the Lord refers to the written scriptures at that time. It's not just commands, but the instruction of God. It's called perfect, the same word for blameless, referring to a perfect sacrifice without any blemishes. In other words, there's no defect in in the law. There's no defect in scripture. Why? And what's the consequence of that? Well, it's able to restore the soul. It's able to restore the soul. And so God is able and he's willing and he has provided everything that we need. And that verse is a really important verse to remember when you are wrestling with, with difficulties and problems in your life. That The law of God, the scripture, the Old and New Testament now, we have all 66 books, is sufficient to restore us. It's sufficient to restore us. And, and with that, we need to remember that we, we need to beware of boredom with Scripture, we need to beware of speculation of Scripture. We need to beware that you know when we get bored with the Scripture, we're, then of course we're going to run to other things. When we, when we refuse Scripture's solutions to our problems, repentance and faith in Christ, humility, putting away sin, humbling ourselves before God, well, of course sinners don't want to do that. And w- if we reject that, we'll be more prone to follow other things. The word fully equipped in Second Timothy That was used in other places to describe a battleship equipped for war. So keep that in mind. It's not just, oh, I'm going to heal all of my wounds from my childhood and and all these things, and I'll just kind of have a limp the rest of my life. No, the Scripture wants to make you a warrior. The Scripture wants to make you sufficient for every good work. And that's really important for us as a church, and I think terribly important for pastors to have that commitment, that the Scripture is sufficient for life. That it's not just, oh, here's how to get to heaven. Sign this card. Pray this prayer. You're good. We're just going to meet and sing songs now for the rest of our lives. No, we want to continually use Scripture as believers to grow in godliness. And as we do that, we'll find that we are more useful to God. We are able to do more for God. And we're able to even put this into practice, having addressed our own problems and issues We're able to help other people because we've worked through it ourselves. And so with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to really give us this confidence. And maybe if we need to think about this a little bit later today, what what I've said here, uh, pray for clarity, for God to give us conviction on this. Our God, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for the sufficiency of the scripture. Uh, There are so many attacks on the scripture uh, so many ways that that the people uh, of this world and even Satan have, has tried to damage our, our view of Scripture and rob us of the treasure that we possess in the Scripture. We pray that you would give us a confidence in your word. Uh, we know that we should believe your word, that all people should believe it, because, but because of our sin, we are prone to doubt. We're prone to uh, doubt that you've really given us everything we need. And so please give us this confidence and give us strength so that we can use it, so that we can be wise with your word and your counsel. We pray that as we continue to go through the scripture as a church, that the scripture would be at work, that your word would work among us and direct us, direct everything we do uh, from, from personal decisions throughout the week to um, larger decisions as an assembled body of Christ here in Orland. We pray that you would be glorified through your word as we put your word into practice. We pray that you'd be gracious to us and good to us as you said you would be, that you'd fulfill all your promises in our life, and we pray that you would get all the glory for any good work that we may do. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.